Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just after three o'clock on the afternoon of Christmas Eve 1980 and Sydney's buzzing with shoppers stocking up on supplies and grabbing last minute gifts. Even though a brewery strike means slabs of beer are hard to find, liquor stores are nevertheless doing a roaring trade. Four litre casks of Orlando Cooler Bar Moselle are a steal at four bucks a throw and you can pick up bottles of Spumante for just 80 cents each. Should you need gaspers over the Christmas season, a carton of Marlboros can be had for $9.99. Supermarkets are stacked with festive feasting bargains. A good-sized roasting chook is $3. A hefty tin of John West leg ham is just 5 And a family-sized tub of home-brand ice cream will set you back less than 2 bucks. Of course, it's the toy departments that are seeing the real action. The big retailers are packed with parents buying presents for their progeny, snapping up Star Wars action figures, strawberry shortcake sets, Atari video game consoles, and those hot ticket noisemakers, smash up derbies, and hungry hungry hippos. One of the city's busiest toy departments is located on the ground floor of the Woolworths Variety Store opposite Town Hall Railway Station. Here, as Christmas carols jingle from the store's loudspeakers, mums and dads, aunties and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, along with hordes of wide-eyed kids, excitedly scour shelves for Hot Wheels and Barbies and teddy bears and army men. With so many people around and so much going on, no one pays much attention to a man carrying a brown paper bag. And no one notices when he tucks it down beside a concrete pillar before disappearing into the crowd. 
At 10 minutes past three, hundreds and hundreds of people are shopping in the Town Hall Woolworth store, which occupies the basement, ground, first and second floors of the 10-storey city building whose upper levels house the company's national headquarters. Now, up on the eighth floor, the phone rings on the desk of Leonie McKinlay, secretary to the company chairman, Eric McClintock. She answers, and a man with an Italian-sounding accent tells her, This is Mr Dunmore. I want you to clear the George and Park Street store in 10 minutes, and you had better do it. Before Leone can say anything, the caller hangs up. Mr Dunmore. That's the code name for the maniac who over the past week has carried out dead-of-night bombings on two Woolworth stores. These blasts? They've caused hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage, and it's something of a miracle that no one's been hurt or killed. Two days ago, Woolworths received Mr. Dunmore's $1 million ransom demand in the form of a letter that was left at the jewelry counter of the town hall store. In this missive, he said there would be no more midnight bombings. Woolworths would next receive 10 minutes notice that a bomb was going to detonate in a store during peak shopping hours. Leonie McKinley? She's just received this warning. With her boss, the chairman, already on Christmas holidays, Leonie rushes to Woolworths general manager, Tony Harding, and to the company's director of corporate communications, John Hendry. They tell her to get out, and Leonie grabs her handbag and hurries for the back stairs. John Hendry sounds a Code 1 alarm over the office's public address system and through the Variety Store's loudspeakers, and then he calls the police. With this harsh alarm taking the place of Christmas carols, staff know they must evacuate immediately. Shoppers want to know, what's going on? Officially, Code 1 means a fire, yet there's no smoke anywhere. People aren't panicked, but some are perhaps a little prickly because there's so much shopping still to do and so little time left to do it in. But what they don't know as they make their way to the exits is how little time they really have before a powerful bomb goes off in the ground floor toy department. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Woolworths Bombings. Regular listeners know that this podcast usually tells true tales that took place such a long time ago that most of the people involved have since passed on. This episode is a little different. The Woolies bombings happened at Christmas time in 1980, and some of those who played roles in the story or knew those involved are alive and well. I've tracked down a few of these men and women, and we'll be hearing what they had to say. Spending the past month speaking with these people, along with reading every available newspaper report, 880 pages of court transcripts, and the published recollections of the detective in charge of the hunt for the bombers, was to discover a colourful caper that sounds like the invention of a scriptwriter with a twisted sense of humour. Yet, this yarn couldn't have been dreamed up in Hollywood. That's because from holding utes and safari suits to pub rock gigs and beer carton bombs, this was true blue Australian true crime. Some of what went down was undeniably comic, but it's important to remember that's only because what went down didn't end up being incredibly tragic. 
but for a few seconds here and there, the Woolworths bombings, rather than fading from most people's memories, might have been indelibly burned into our collective consciousness as one of the deadliest and most infamous crimes in Australian history. Woolworths and Christmas have gone hand in hand in Australia for nearly a century now. That's not me towing the company's marketing line, because Woolworths here was the brainchild of founding chief executive Harold Percival Christmas, and yes, he was actually nicknamed Father Christmas by his staff. The first Woolworths store, which borrowed its name from the American retail giant but was otherwise unrelated, was downstairs in Sydney's Imperial Arcade and it opened during the 1924 Christmas shopping season. Newspaper advertisements trumpeted this new cash and carry as, quote, Woolworths' stupendous bargain basement. Cups and saucers, full breakfast size, were just sixpence. Did you ever hear of such low prices? asked one ad. Four ounce jars of that cure-all Vaseline were sixpence. 200 sheet writing pads were 11 pennies. And good quality Fuji silk bloomers were six shillings and nine pence. There was something for everyone, even the kids, with a whole counter dedicated to dolls. On opening day, the 5th of December, Eager customers queued along Pitt and Castlereagh streets from sunrise so they could be among the first inside when trading began at 9am. If you think today's bargain hunters can be pretty brutal, well, it wasn't much different back then. A salesgirl named Nell Hunt much later told the Australian Women's Weekly, quote, The opening was bedlam. People tumbled down the stairs, pushing and shoving to the bargains displayed on counters separated into sections by chicken wire. The crush was so great that people kept fainting. Woolies customers tumbling over each other downstairs at Christmas time? As we'll hear, this scene was to be repeated half a century later as people tried not to get into, but to get away from, the company's main Sydney store. Following the pandemonium of its opening day, Woolworths at first grew steadily and then grew rapidly. The company opened a second store in Brisbane in 1926 and a third in Wellington in New Zealand just as Wall Street was crashing in 1929. Woolworths trading at the bargained end of things meant the Great Depression actually worked in its favour because it catered to people who were pinching pennies. By the end of 1933, the company had 23 Australian stores and another eight in New Zealand. World War II's manpower and material shortage would curb expansion, but by July 1948, the company was again opening new stores. From there on, Woolworths would play a major role in reshaping how Australians bought food and goods, moving us away from small grocers and specialty stores and towards big supermarkets and sprawling shopping centres. In 1955, the company introduced checkouts based on the American self-service model. This sped things up, and the addition of fresh food sections meant you could buy some produce in the same place where you were buying socks and singlets, tea towels and toothbrushes. By December 1959, Woolworths had 300 stores, and five months later, it launched its first food-focused supermarket. The company made rapid inroads into food retailing that year when it acquired the Fleming's Fabulous Food Stores chain, which comprised 55 outlets. During the 1960s, Woolworths built multi-million dollar shopping centres where one of their stores would be surrounded by smaller premises leased to retailers. 
Emblematic of this rise and rise, in 1965, the company took over the landmark Bieberfelds building on the corner of George and Park Streets opposite Town Hall in the centre of Sydney. A Woolworths variety store occupied the basement through to the second floor, while the upper levels were given over to the company's national headquarters. It was from this impressive HQ that the company was soon to launch its new look family centres and the Big W chain. By 1976, Woolworths had 32,000 employees nationally and was the first Australian retailer to top $1 billion in sales. Yet, it wasn't all plain sailing. In mid-1978 in New South Wales, hundreds of stormen and packers walked off the job because they wanted the paid meal break other members of their union had been granted by a Woolworths rival. Usually, such benefits flowed on immediately, but Woolworths refused. The bitter strike that followed led to shop assistants being stood down and severe shortages of food and goods that saw some stores close temporarily. Woolworths, backed by the Industrial Commissioner and the Union Executive, refused to back down, and it broke the strike by issuing an ultimatum. Return to work or be fired. Woolworths' point man during this dispute was its New South Wales state manager, John Hendry. Born in Sydney in July of 1922, he grew up in Watson's Bay, went to Vaucluse Public School and then to Scots College. When he left school, he worked in a Sydney car dealership. With the coming of the Second World War, 19-year-old John joined the army and was soon assigned to an anti-aircraft regiment protecting the city. So it was on the 31st of May 1942 that he was part of a crew stationed on Fort Denison when three Japanese midget submarines caused havoc on Sydney Harbour. John and his mates were in the thick of the action that night, reciting their gun from sky to sea, scanning the surface and even firing one or two rounds at shadows they thought were Japanese subs. Later on, John Hendry would see action in Borneo, Moratai and Tarakan. According to his daughter, with whom I spoke recently, John was like many veterans in that he didn't talk much about the war and he wouldn't go to an Anzac Day march until 1968. John reckoned his war had been a walk in the park compared with what other diggers had gone through. But of course, that's all relative and his daughter told me that John, who stood six foot two, returned from the Pacific in a state of severe emaciation. Having recovered, he and wife Valerie, who he'd married in February of 1944, settled down in Sydney's eastern suburbs and would go on to have three children. In 1948, John joined Woolworths, starting at the bottom as a store boy. Over the next two decades, he worked his way up the ladder, becoming a store manager and for a time oversaw one of Woolworths' massive warehouses. John became New Zealand state manager in 1968 and was then Western Australian state manager in 1970 before taking over the New South Wales top job in 1976. So, he was one of the top executives at the helm during the company's massive expansion and record revenues. And, as we heard, John held the line for Woolworths during that Stormen and Packers strike. John's daughter described her dad as a fiercely loyal company man and said, by way of example, that if you happened to go to Coles, well, it'd be best for everyone if you just didn't mention it in his presence. When it came to John Hendry, his family, his job and his company, his daughter said, quote, you just didn't mess with him. He was also fond of saying, quote, 
there's no such thing as compromise. Tough as he was, John Hendry was going to be severely tested by the Woolworths bombings. Dunmore is a small, mostly rural suburb of Shell Harbour on the New South Wales south coast. On the morning of the 22nd of September 1980, Laurie Blair, who was the foreman of the local blue metal and gravel quarry, discovered that one of the company's Holden Utes was missing. The vehicle was found three quarters of a mile away, dumped on the side of the Princess Highway, with about 30 feet of barbed wire hanging off its front end. Laurie and his workers followed the car's tracks back to the quarry where a section of fence had been smashed down when the thieves had made off with the Holden. This minor incident was reported to the police, but it was hardly the great bookie robbery and it was forgotten, at least for a few days. On the 26th of September, Laurie discovered a far more serious crime had been committed at the Dunmore Quarry. Holes had been cut into the besser brick walls of two of the quarry's magazine buildings. From one of these, thieves had stolen a handful of detonators. From the other, they'd stolen in the vicinity of 150 sticks of gelignite. The thieves had apparently used that Holden Ute to move this half ton of high explosives. They'd ditched the vehicle on the side of the highway and then they and their bomb-making materials had vanished. By this time, spring of 1980, John Hendry had been promoted to Woolworths National Director of Corporate Communications, and there was plenty of good news to communicate from corporate headquarters. After a few years in the doldrums due to high inflation and rising unemployment, the Australian economy appeared to have turned a corner. Conditions and consumer confidence were improving, and Woolworths was on track to not only have a bumper Christmas, but to top $2 billion in annual sales for the first time. On Friday, the 24th of October, 1980, a man walked into Woolworths' head office and left a typewritten letter. This note claimed that two poisoned packets of Fielding's brand cornflour and cake mix had been slipped onto the shelves of the Double Bay and Town Hall stores. More contaminated packets would be placed unless a ransom of $800,000 was paid by the company. Woolworths Management, John Hendry, along with company general manager Tony Harding and chairman Eric McClintock, alerted Sydney police and immediately had those Fielding's items removed from all 150 Woolworths supermarkets and Fleming stores throughout Sydney. CIB detectives spent four days watching the two supposedly targeted outlets. The extortionists, meanwhile, made two phone calls with a view to arranging the handover of the ransom at midday on the 28th of October. Woolworths decided not to pay. Once the deadline passed and against the wishes of the police, the company went public about the threat and their response. General Manager Tony Harding said at a press conference, quote, Woolworths believed that in the interests of its many customers, it should make all sections of the community aware of the position in which the company has been placed. Another company spokesman, Tom Harvey, said Woolworths constantly received minor demands and bomb threats. Quote, but nothing of this nature has happened to us. It is easily the biggest demand we have ever received. Now, he said, Woolworths had to play a waiting game and see what happened next. As it turned out, nothing did. 
the extortionist made no further contact. Given that by this time the gelignite had already been stolen from Dunmore, there was a very good chance that this poisoning threat was a strategic hoax meant to give the extortionists an idea of how Woolworths would react to a credible threat, which senior managers would be involved, how these men would liaise with police, and whether they'd pay the ransom and or go public. Broadly, the poisoning threat showed all of these things. What it also demonstrated, though, was that Woolworths senior managers weren't easily rattled. Located just 10 kilometres from Dunmore on the New South Wales south coast, Warilla Grove is one of the shopping centres that Woolworths had built in the late 1960s. In 1980, the complex comprised a Woolworths family centre and 20 other shops. At 3.04am on the 17th of December, security guard Trevor Green was doing his rounds inside the complex. The only other person in the place was a cleaner polishing the floors. Trevor Green reached the entrance to the Woolworths when he heard a noise that sounded like someone running on the roof. As he turned around and went to investigate, a massive explosion ripped through the building. Trevor would say he thought that the whole shopping centre was lifting off the ground. The blast had been in the roof over the entrance to the Woolworths. If he hadn't heard that noise and reversed his course, there's a very good chance that Trevor would have been killed. Realising he was in one piece, Trevor told the cleaner to get out and then ran to his office to call the police. When they arrived, he and the officers took a look at the damage. There was debris everywhere. The blast had ripped a huge hole in the roof, shattered the woolly shop front and blown out the windows of neighbouring stores. Exposed electrical wires were sparking, water was gushing from destroyed pipes and the air was filled with blue smoke. There was also the smell of gas and, fearing that this had caused the blast, Trevor and the police retreated. The scientific squad spent the day sifting through the wreckage and concluded from recovered metal fragments that someone had bombed Warilla Grove Woolworths. The footsteps that Trevor had heard moments before the blast? That was thought to have been the perpetrator fleeing across the roof after dropping a gelignite device into an air vent. The Illawarra Mercury newspaper ran a photograph of Trevor looking at the wreckage and quoted him saying, I was lucky I was not blown to bits. I would hate to have it happen again. And that was what the Mercury reported that the police feared. A mad bomber was on the loose and he'd strike again at shops in the region. Nearly 300 kilometres north, nearly 48 hours later, in the lower Hunter Valley town of Maitland, Patricia Henshaw, base operator for the Red and White Taxi Company, was having a bit of a slow night. At 1.40am, she was about to bunk down in the High Street office. Pat was closing a window just as driver Glyn Morgan was coming through the front door. That was when the quiet of Maitland after midnight was in an instant shattered by a deafening thunderclap. The taxi office shook on its foundations and Pat and Glynn thought they were about to die. Through the window, Pat saw a shower of debris spewing from the Woolworths annex door across the street as smoke rose into the night sky. Inside the store, a small fire quickly blazed out of control, threatening the two-story Woolworths main store next door. The explosion, which was heard five kilometres away, shattered shop windows 
all along Maitland's main street. 40 to 60 firemen attended from half a dozen stations around the area. Four of these fireys went into the burning building wearing breathing apparatus. So they were risking their lives as paint tins, aerosol cans and gas cylinders blew up and the ceiling fell in and the rear wall of the building collapsed. Again, fortunately, no one was injured. It was an hour before the blaze was brought under control, though spot fires flared up through the night. The adjoining Woolworths premises were saved, though the annex door was so badly damaged by the blast and the blaze that it would have to be razed. The town's detectives and Newcastle Station's scientific squad spent the day examining the wreckage for clues. They and Woolworths' John Hendry refused to say on the record what had caused the explosion or whether it was linked to the Warilla blast. That first explosion hadn't been big news in Sydney's newspapers. After all, it was competing with a couple of really grim assassination stories. There were the ongoing revelations about Mark David Chapman, who'd senselessly gunned down John Lennon in New York City just over a week ago. Closer to home, and more recently, in fact, on the same day as the Warilla blast, the Turkish consul and his bodyguard had been shot dead by assassins on a Sydney street. But a second Woolworths explosion in 48 hours? That was headline-grabbing stuff. The Daily Mirror's front-page screamer left no doubts as to the cause. Quote, Bombed! Blast Rex Woolies! Off the record, detectives told the newspaper's reporters they believed a bomb comprising gelignite, a timer and a detonator had been lowered into an air vent from the roof of the Maitland store. This was the same MO as Warilla and police were investigating any links. On the record, police across the state had been ordered to keep an eye on Woolworths stores. For his part, John Hendry told the press that the company had hired more security guards and would be taking other precautions over the Christmas rush. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Who was attacking Woolworths and why? The Daily Mirror reported, quote, Detectives are puzzled about a motive for the attacks as there have been no threats or demands on the stores. What was clear was that it was lucky no one had been injured or killed by these blasts. As taxi base operator Pat Henshaw had said to the Maitland Mercury, quote, All I could think was what would have happened if it had gone off when all the shoppers were around. At this time in Sydney, and actually all around Australia, there was something of a mania for bomb hoaxes. Caller ID wasn't yet a thing, and neither were easily traceable mobile phones. That meant a teenage delinquent, a disgruntled former employee, 
Someone with a mental illness or someone with a get-rich-quick scheme could, for the price of a local call from a phone box, strike fear into residences, businesses or government offices and cause police to be called and an evacuation to be carried out. A couple of examples of how common these offences were. The inquiry into the death of Azaria Chamberlain, which was then being held in Alice Springs, received so many bomb threats that Lindy and Michael Chamberlain had to be under constant police guard. Meanwhile, in Sydney, federal authorities were reportedly considering moving an entire departmental office from its present location because workers were being evacuated every few days due to yet another bomb threat. The first two Woolworths bombings, which together had caused $400,000 in damage, would inspire dozens of threats, almost like a deranged fan club had come out of the woodwork. On the 20th of December 1980, staff at the Woolworths store at Orange in the central west of New South Wales received a bomb call. The voice on the phone warned that unless $1 million was paid, that store, or a Sydney store, would be the next to be bombed. Police investigated and thought that it might be linked to the two bombings, but it was difficult to know whether the caller was actually responsible or whether it was just one more crank or copycat. There were no such doubts two days later. At 11am, the 22nd of December, on the 8th floor of Woolworths head office, Leonie McKinlay, secretary to chairman Eric McClintock, took a phone call that had been patched through from the switchboard. A male voice simply said that an envelope had been delivered to the jewellery counter of the store below, that it was addressed to management and she should have it collected. Leone informed John Hendry, who directed a security officer to retrieve the envelope. John read it and then took it to general manager Tony Harding. The typewritten letter had been addressed to Tony and this is what it said, quote, this week, we exploded two devices in two separate areas of New South Wales. They were both detonated in the early hours of the morning to demonstrate our ability with explosives and your vulnerability. There will be no further nighttime exercises. If it is necessary for us to bring more pressure to bear upon your company, we intend to place explosives in your stores, which will explode during peak shopping hours. That was chilling, and it got more sinister, continuing. We would like to point out that we are aware of the names, addresses, families of all top management, personnel who are decision makers to our demands. You are totally unaware of who we are, the letter went on. Quote, At present, the media have not created a sensational story nor have the police really committed themselves publicly to the obvious link between Warilla and Maitland. Let's keep it that way. If your immediate cooperation is not forthcoming, we will proceed with our next program of explosions. The terrorism, for want of a better word, will not be restricted to New South Wales. Our options are many. Yours are not. We have in our possession enough explosives to embarrass Woolworths for a very long time. When the police are informed of the name that will be used as the code for our future contact, they will know where the explosives came from and the extent of our supply. It is considerable. Now, the extortion letter got down to business. Quote, Numerous locations have been observed over the last few months. If our demands are not met immediately, 
we will proceed with stage two of our plans, daylight explosions during peak hours. We suggest you meet our demands with discrete seriousness. We demand $500,000 in used unmarked $20 notes, $250,000 in 10 50-ounce gold bullion bars, $250,000 in loose diamonds of one carat or greater. Any foolishness regarding the true value of the gold and diamonds will result in great embarrassment to the people we know are the decision makers of our demands. The letter went on, quote, You will carry out the following instructions immediately. 1. Key management of stores nationally to be instructed that when Mr. Dunmore rings and tells them there is a bomb in the store, they will have 10 minutes only to clear the store. 2. If police or associated personnel enter the store in that 10 minutes, take no responsibility for their inevitable injuries. The third point made reference to a Woolworths employee they designated to be the courier. Quote, 3. Greg Newling will be instructed that he will carry the ransom to the handover point. 4. Eric McClintock will be in his office for all business hours until the handover is received for any extra communication that may be required. 5. Further instructions will be given as to where the gold and diamonds will be purchased and the individuals that will make the sale. This letter was signed, Mr Dunmore. John Hendry called the consorting squad. The inclusion of the Dunmore name was soon linked by detectives to the theft of the Gelignite. The ransom letter was sent to the document examination section, photographed and then sent on to the fingerprint section where it was subjected to the ninhydrin process, but no latent prints were detected. While Woolworths had called the poisoner's bluff two months ago, this was a far more complicated and far more dangerous situation. Even with their insurance, the two explosions had already subjected the company to substantial losses in terms of destroyed infrastructure, damaged stock, and store closures during the busiest time of the year. That was bad. But with the bombers now threatening to strike in daylight hours, there was a very real possibility another blast would leave staff and shoppers injured or dead. Equally chilling, the bombers had made veiled threats against the company's management and their families. By demanding that Woolworths employee Greg Newling act as the ransom courier, the bombers had also shown that they knew the company's ins and outs. This led John Hendry and his colleagues to worry that the enemy was within Woolworths and that their every move might be being watched by someone who had access to staff records and other sensitive information. This led to the demand letter only being revealed to senior national directors because everyone else was potentially a suspect. In view of all this, Woolworths directors told the police that they were prepared to negotiate with the extortionists. It was just too dangerous to refuse. While they waited for further contact, police tried to trace the typewriter and paper used for the extortion letter. Hoax calls, to be expected in greater volume at this time of year, were treated more seriously for any indication it was the bombers on the line. In the 48 hours after the ransom letter was delivered, there was obviously a credible threat against Woolworths stores during peak Christmas shopping hours. 
but the company had 256 outlets in New South Wales alone. They couldn't close every store. Nor could they alert the public to the threat without risking the extortionists setting off another bomb in retaliation. What was of some comfort was that it was unlikely that the extortionists would detonate another explosive before making further contact. Across Sydney, across the state and across Australia, hundreds of thousands of Woolworths customers went about their festive season shopping largely unaware of the potential danger. Yet a headline in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 23rd of December had to give some people pause. Quote, Woolworths on alert after bomb blasts. The article said the two recent explosions might be linked to the October poisoning extortion attempt. John Hendry told the Herald that Woolworths had on police advice put on extra security patrols and store surveillance. There'd be closer checks on customers' bags and heightened awareness about suspicious or abandoned parcels. John Hendry was reported as saying the company wasn't yet ready to accept that all the incidents were linked and that someone had a vendetta against Woolworths. Of course, what he couldn't say was that the company had already received that $1 million ransom demand and were awaiting further contact from the bomber, codenamed Mr Dunmore. From the moment they opened their doors on the 24th of December 1980, Sydney stores were positively packed with people and the streets were bustling as well. Sent out to capture these Christmas Eve scenes, a junior Channel 7 news camera crew was filming outside the Hilton Hotel on George Street. Two years ago, this had been the site of a horrific bombing that had left two council workers and a policeman dead. Today, around 1pm, it was a far happier affair, with buskers playing for a crowd of onlookers. As the Channel 7 guys were filming, a man walked up to 16-year-old camera assistant Graham Storer. This bloke reportedly said, quote, I don't know what you are doing here. The news is going to be at Woolworths later. Graham's offsider, 20-year-old cameraman John Scott, asked the man what he meant. This fellow replied, There will be a bomb go off and a threat made. The police will know about it. With that, the man walked away. Though they were both young, the Channel 7 guys had enough experience to write this guy off as a joker. Their station got hoaxes all the time, so they kept on working. That day, bomb hoaxes were work for Constable Alan Duncan of Central Police Station. This young officer had been on duty with his partner in their patrol car since the early morning, and their entire shift had been taken up with checking out threats against businesses. Other officers were then responding to bomb threats all over Sydney and the suburbs. The most serious had been against the Woolworths at Bankstown, with this store evacuated as the bomb squad rushed to the scene. When this proved to be yet another hoax, the police and Woolworths directors breathed a sigh of relief because with no further official contact with Mr Dunmore, it seemed unlikely anything would happen before Christmas. At the town hall store, Ever since the poisoning extortion attempt, the manager, Mr Gardner, had asked staff to be on the lookout for anyone acting suspiciously. That included shoppers opening packages. At 10 to 3 in the afternoon, shop assistant Iris Simpkins, who worked at the cosmetics counter on the ground floor, noticed a man behaving oddly in the toy department. 
While adults and children shopped, this shabbily dressed and bearded bloke was on the floor playing with a model train. Iris had actually seen this odd bod before lunch when he'd been in her department absently handling products, though his attention seemed elsewhere. She now found the store's manager, Mr. Gardner, and alerted him to the strange man, but when they got to the toy department, this strange character had cleared out. Eight floors above, 20 minutes later, at 10 past three, the phone rang on Leonie McKinlay's desk. She picked it up. It wasn't the same voice as the man who'd alerted her to the letter two days ago. This caller had an Italian-sounding accent. He said, This is Mr Dunmore. I want you to clear the George and Park Street store in 10 minutes, and you had better do it. With Chairman Eric McClintock already on Christmas holiday, Leonie rushed to tell John Hendry and Tony Harding. They said she should evacuate. Then they sounded the alert and called the police. Across the Woolworths office and retail stores, the Code 1 alarm blaring from the public address systems spurred staff into action. Section managers and sales assistants told shoppers to get out immediately. There was anxiety, but not panic, as hundreds of people rushed for the doors opening onto George and Park Streets. At 3.15, having finished with a bomb hoax against Knock and Kirby, Constable Alan Duncan's patrol car radio crackled to life. He and his partner were ordered to go to the Town Hall Woolworths. As they responded, they heard that a senior unit was also on the way there. That it was a Woolworths, and that specialist senior officers were also responding, made Alan think this might not be another hoax. When he and his partner arrived at the Town Hall store, they found a full-scale evacuation in progress. Hundreds of people were crowded around the footpaths outside the ground floor. Not knowing what was going on, some of these people and other shoppers arriving at the store were eager to get back inside. Alan and his partner raced to the Woolworths corporate entrance on George Street, where they were met by a manager who took them upstairs. Floor by floor, they checked to make sure everyone was out. More than 10 minutes had already elapsed and there hadn't been an explosion. Maybe this was yet another hoax. Maybe this had been Mr Dunmore keeping Woolworths on its toes. At 3.25, Constable Alan Duncan and his partner got back to the ground floor corporate entrance in the lift. They rushed along the corridor towards George Street, intending to enter the store to do a final sweep to make certain that all staff and shoppers were clear. That's when the bomb exploded. The blast wave radiated out, destroying toys and fixtures, shattering the George and Park Street shopfront windows and raining glass across the footpaths and the streets. John Hendry, he'd been the last Woolworths staffer out the door and had just crouched in the George Street gutter when the shockwave hit him as window shards shattered across the pavement. A witness named Glenn Baxter, who had a camera with him and who took photos that would appear on the Sydney Morning Herald's front page two days later, told the paper, quote, There was a blast and a sudden smash of breaking glass, and for a moment, nobody moved or said anything. Then there were terrified screams and people were racing in all directions. It was like a stampede, and I was knocked about by people bumping into me as I tried to take photographs. A Woolworths staff member would tell the Daily Telegraph, quote, I'd just reached the footpath when I saw a flash and heard a huge bang. 
glass showered across the footpaths, striking some people. We ran across the road, fearing there might be more explosions. It was a terrifying experience. George Street was a scene of utter pandemonium as white dust swirled from the shattered storefronts and hundreds of terrified people ran onto the road amid moving cars. Many others surged down the stairs into underground town hall railway station, people frantically climbing over one another in their attempts to escape. The physics of the explosion had meant that the blast wave blew out the George Street windows a split second before those along Park Street, resulting in witnesses hearing two explosions and thinking two bombs had gone off. Now, in the chaos, a Woolworth security officer was handed a note that said there was another bomb inside the building. As for Constable Alan Duncan, who hadn't made it out when the bomb went off, You can hear him tell his story of that day and the fallout that lingers 40 years later in the accompanying bonus interview episode that's out now. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Woolworths Bombings. The second instalment is going to be released very soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's out. If you've enjoyed Forgotten Australia, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because it'll help the show reach other people. Special thanks to Alan Duncan for sharing his experiences and to the Hendry family for their recollections about their father, John Hendry. Also, a big shout out to my mate Emma Hesseltine, who a couple of years ago suggested that the Woolies bombings might make a good episode. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.